Welcome to the Learning Capacity Podcast, where we explore stories from around the world. We hear from educators, parents, students, entrepreneurs and scientists about innovations that help make learning easier and more successful. I'm your host, Peter Barnes. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Judy Ford. She's a scientist who has specialised in genetics research for many years. But today we're not talking about genetics. We're talking about how Dr. Ford has helped PhD students to cut through the jargon, special language and subject complexity to communicate their ideas to others. And you'll hear her talk about the three-minute thesis competition. Dr. Ford, welcome to the podcast. So you're a science communicator, a genetics expert, and you recently retired from the University of South Australia. <clears throat> but you're actually not retired, are you? Well, I'm sort of retired, yes. I'm, I'm now going to try and lead a balanced life where I spend about half of my time exercising, some of the time doing house chores, and the rest of the time I'm trying to develop um, online materials and online course, um, perhaps many, several courses over time, um, because I don't really want to travel to work anymore. Well, that sounds like a very nice lifestyle. And what what are you uh, what's what are you doing with your courses? Who who are you teaching? What are you teaching? Right. Well, right at the moment, I'm not teaching anyone. But um, over the last few years, I've had a lot of experience. Um, I was working with PhD students, and my role in the university was to help get the help get the students through their PhDs. So I was helping them with planning their experiments, planning their various um, interviews and, and analyses, questionnaires, as well as, um, of course, their writing and, in particular, their verbal communications. And, and as time went on, I got more and more well-known for teaching them how to speak and how to present. And, in fact, in the last year, I did a lot of work um, with various specialist groups throughout Australia. And and the most recent um, conference that I presented to was um, there was the International Space Conference was on in Adelaide and I was asked to present um, a workshop at the beginning of the event for all the PhD students from all over the world who were attending. So, so this idea of being able to teach people how to communicate their work effectively to a range of different audiences became a bit of my specialty. And so I decided that that was where I would start with my course. But it's not just for PhD students. It's really for anyone who has um, an important message to convey, and that that message, you know, it, it may be something personal, or it may be something scientific, or it may be something, you know, in any other discipline. But it's uh, my focus is more on getting a very accurate message across um, in an effective and entertaining way. But whereas I think a lot of other people who train speakers focus just on the entertainment, I'm, I've got a real balance because I think that it's really, really important that people be able to convey 
an accurate inf- an accurate message to the audiences that they're trying to reach. That sounds like a skill that would be very useful for high school students who are considering what they do after high school. Uh, are they going to go into a job, into a career, move on to university? The, 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 the ability to communicate orally and in writing is one of the skills that uh, is absolutely essential for success in anything we do. Yes, yes, no, that's absolutely true. And over the last few months, um, there have been some special episodes of the ABC program Q&A, and some high school students have featured on that. And some of these students are absolutely amazing in their competence. And uh, I, I don't know whether they're achieving that through debating or you know, whether teachers in particular classes are focusing on this. But yes, we do need to develop these skills very much in our, in our children as they're sort of getting close to the end. I mean, I think it's something you probably can introduce early in the piece and, and then modify and refine as they work through their school curriculum. Yes, even starting back as early as primary school. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just thinking, I mean, I I was one of these kids that I think like so many kids who were very, very nervous about, you know, getting up and saying what they thought, um, even though, you know, I've turned out to be quite a chatterbox in my old age. Um, one, of the, one of the parents of uh, one of my friends from early primary school, he said that, you know, I was the shyest child he had ever met. And so, you know, I, I did find it very hard to say what I was thinking. And when I first went to university, um, my first day in orientation week, we went to some presentations by great professors and who could really speak to very large audiences. And I realised then on that day, that if I was ever going to get anywhere in life, I needed to be able to present and I need to be able to present confidently to a very large audience if necessary. So, and I was terrified, you know, I was one of these people who, you know, thought I'd faint if I had to stand up and actually say something in front of a group. Um, So, I decided to put up my name for committees and and get onto committees where I had to speak um, just to get into that practice of, of communicating. Uh, so, yes. You took it on the chin, you put yourself out there and took some risks. I guess I did, you know, but it was a very – it was a gradual process. Mm-hmm. But I do remember how um, – some of the students, when they were asked to give their first presentation to a group of people, you know, in the department, and, you know, they were nearly fainting, or in fact, I think a couple of them actually did faint. <laughs> the other thing you see is people, um, you know, they don't breathe, so their <laughs> voice is getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, and you think, oh my gosh, they're not going to actually last this whole thing unless they take a breath, you know. What's that, that cliche about uh, people would rather die than stand up and give a yeah, speech? <laughs> yeah, and there's no doubt that public speaking is, is one of the greatest fears that people have. Mm. Um, so that's why, you know, places like Toastmasters, um, 
exist and I think even even if you are doing a course like mine, it's a very good idea to join a local Toastmasters and still get that experience because whilst I can give people tips and tricks, you know, I can't give them that experience. So you still need to, you know, participate in other groups where everybody practices together, I mm. think. Well, thinking about primary and secondary education, which I know is not your field, you, you've been involved in tertiary education for a long time and high, yes. uh, and high levels of tertiary education. But in primary and secondary education, what do you think – do you think we're missing something in that we don't seem to be developing the communication skills specifically? It just seems to be perhaps it's a bit incidental. Some, some students are lucky enough to participate in debating or, or courses, but there's no – as far as I'm aware, no curriculum – Yes, I don't really know what the current curriculum is. Um, I have done a tiny bit of work in schools, mainly around the time when my own children were at school. Um, and in those days, there, there weren't particular courses apart from drama or you know other courses that could feed into that performance confidence sort of area um, but I think it's it's obviously possible and and I'm sure a lot of teachers do it and it's probably teacher specific but I think you know this idea of, of being able to stand up and say what you think needs to be valued I do think I was talking to somebody yesterday about um, American culture because her children had actually gone to school in America um, for a couple of years and and in America you know there is that that huge sort of positioning of yourself and confidence I think it's a bit overdone maybe <laughs> <laughs> depends depends what 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 part yeah. of the spectrum you're on I mean yes exactly but I think um, but I do think that we have, and I think, you know, all the current sort of internet and social media and uh, texting uh, have actually even reduced the the value of English literature quite a lot. And and so we, we do need to see the balance and the, the building up of, uh, and not just in English students, but also in science and math students, that, that ability to really communicate what you're thinking and communicate those ideas. And yeah, I think it would be something that if teachers were able to manage it in the classroom situation, it would be a great thing. And if they can't, perhaps parents should be seeking some sort of continuous or periodic training throughout primary and secondary school for their students. Because if I look at what's been going on in I'm sorry, I was just laughing for because I was thinking perhaps the parents need to be trained. <laughs> well, possibly they do. They're probably very – a lot of them are probably very scared of <laughs> Yeah. Public. Yeah. But the, the, um, the way workplaces have changed and are changing with the impact of technology and cultural changes and so forth means now that it's much more important to be able to communicate with uh, team members, with uh, working in teams with different, from, coming from different disciplines like 
like the accounting people working with the marketing mm. people and so forth, and that's across all organisations. And I understand you've been doing quite a bit of that work with um, PhD students and postdocs to teach them how to communicate with people from different disciplines. Yes, because often that was one of the wonderful things about my job, particularly, so you may or may not have heard of the three-minute thesis competition, but the three-minute thesis competition was invented by the University of Queensland, and it was actually invented during water restrictions when they were only allowed to have three-minute showers, and so a professor had this brilliant idea that three minutes, yes, that's long enough to be able to communicate the ideas that are important in your PhD. So this person sort of put this forward and they invented this competition, which has now become a worldwide competition. So I think the Australasian version is still the latest and greatest, but it's gone sort of, it's now at least um, undertaken in in America and England and the you know Europe wherever, um, but this says that you need to be able to convey the important elements of your work in in three minutes, and uh, it's a, it's a little bit like the marketing elevator pitch that people mm, often talk mm, about, mm. Um, but it's. It's of course it lacks any detail, um, but anyhow. So I used to teach this, and in my classes I would have everybody. So I would have people who were studying English literature, um, history, politics, mathematics, physics, you know, space, whatever. You know, so you had this whole. Uh, world of people from different backgrounds and that made it fantastic because they had to be able to talk to one another and everyone had to be able to understand. Now what was funny was that usually in somebody's first version I, I, I tried to get them to start off by listening with me as a class to a whole lot of examples uh, that were on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And then we would discuss how they went. You know, what were the good points? What were the bad points? Did they get their message across? You know, the whole, the whole gambit of, of things that they might discuss. And that was very useful. But nevertheless, a lot of students, when they went away and prepared their first draft, it often still had a lot of jargon in it and was only really understandable by people who were in a closely related discipline. <clears throat> so, and then you'd ask the students to comment on one another's talks. So you get them to give the talk to this mixed group and you get them to give one another feedback. And especially someone a shy international student who was maybe, you know, studying physics and they were asked to comment on somebody whose work was in education and they they would their first comment would be, I can't I can't make any comment because I couldn't really understand it. Mm, mm, um, mm. So, you know, even when they're given the task of creating something that should be understood, they've got so tied up and so in um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, indoctrinated. They've got so indoctrinated by the jargon 
in whatever their discipline is, that even when they're trying not to use it or being instructed not to use it, it still comes in. Mm. And and um, one of the problems I had actually was that the lecturers and the supervisors and the more senior staff didn't come to my workshops. And so often when the students went back to them to get feedback on their scripts, they would want to put all the jargon back in. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so that, that was a problem. So I kept sort of trying to say to the students, you have to ask your supervisor if they'd listen to some of these examples of the three-minute thesis so they get the idea of what's required. So anyway, mm. you know, that, that, that's a bigger problem probably than all of us that we, that we can't educate the oldies as well as the newies coming through. Um, but, but yeah, it becomes such a, such a habit to use jargon within any discipline that that it's very very hard to get rid of that yes yeah i mean there's there's parallels between what you're describing there where you're teaching people who are speaking to distill complex messages into short simple understandable pieces uh there's a parallel in the speaking uh world i guess to the written communication where the same thing applies where mm. where it's 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 a real skill i've i've seen to take something that's reasonably complex and then just distill it down into simple language yeah without losing its important messages you know because that's that's part of the problem is that when you simplify the concept too much you you lose a lot of the importance of the message and so the the critical thing is to learn how to get rid of the jargon um but not the concept and uh, it, you know jargon is something that is so alive and well and the the disciplines that are oh, I probably shouldn't say this because I'm I'm sort of used to scientific jargon so I don't probably don't notice it as much. But I, I did find that a lot of the people who are working in the social sciences, um, I, they just in, have intense jargon mm. and it's just incredibly hard to understand what what they're saying. <laughs> they probably say the same thing about people working in science. Well, they, they would, you see. So that's, <laughs> so that's why you need to get everybody together and, and, and for them to be able to translate to one another, what what it what it's actually all about? Well, you know, in, have you come across a, an app called Hemingway App, which uh, helps? It's a wonderful little thing. It's free. Hemingway, based mm -hmm. on on her, Ernest Hemingway's yeah, very course. clean, easy, re, easy, easy readable writing, and it, it, you put your written text into that and it'll very quickly tell you how readable it is and make suggestions. I don't, probably won't deal with jargon, but it certainly makes the job of creating a uh, clearer communication much, much easier. Yeah, That's good to know. I think I should, I'll have a look at that and see whether I can somehow put it in. Because I think, you know, you, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. And I think that 
that's one of the things I try to do is to say, well, look, you know, there are loads of wonderful examples of people giving good and bad talks. So I can direct you to those and you can watch them. And this is what I might ask you to look for. So I can sort of alert them to to how they can use these things. But yeah, I don't, obviously, I don't want to reinvent or try to reinvent everything. No, there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, that's one of the things now that I noticed that, like, I have a uh, 11-year-old grandson, and he, he basically says, anything I need to know, I just go Google it, right? It's not. Uh, so then the skill then for, for him is, what, what do you do with that information? How do you, communi- mm. how do, how do you communicate what you've learnt from that in, yeah. in, in speaking and writing? And I, I think that's going to be more and more important uh, in the future for young people. Well, I think for old people too, you know, I mean, I do exactly the same thing. So I hear about something and then I go and look for a whole lot of examples of where people have have looked at that and written about it. So because, of course, not everything you read is right um, and and it all comes from different uh, different angles. And I might say <clears throat> that even a lot of the work that is published in really reputable uh, journals that are, you know, these are the, the ones in, in the official academic world, even then the work isn't necessarily whole. So it's, you know, it's often looked at one aspect of something and so the study has necessarily omitted other things that are really important. And and often people haven't made all the necessary connections that need to be made. So it's it's very difficult. Uh, I mean it's just it's just giving you a, a bigger a bigger, richer source of information, but you still have to distill it and put it all together and find its meaning. Yes, absolutely. And so the course, the, the in your sort of semi-retirement, or when you're in the part of your life now when you're not retired and building courses, yes, your 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 immediate target, I understand, is is uh, university uh, level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it 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 is focused at a university audience, uh, but I'm not sure. Looking at the content, I could, I'm not sure how restrictive it is. I'm, I'm certainly thinking that, you know, anybody who had graduated from a course or even was studying undergraduate at university would be able to use it. I'm just not sure quite whether it's suitable for school kids, uh, school students. Mm. Um, but it might be it might be suitable for students in the latter years of school. In yeah, fact, it's quite likely. It would be interesting to um, see whether it is, because one of the things that's that's got my attention, no doubt, lots of people's attention, is this: the transition from school to university and the huge dropout rate. Uh, students have in university. I've, I've read, I don't know whether this is correct or not, but uh, one in five drop out before finishing their course. And I don't know whether what you're offering there would help students no. in that regard or possibly not. I think um, the, the first session of this first course, okay, so there 
will be other courses, but this the, the first session of the first course um, is about studying your audience and the occasion on which you're going to speak. Now, you know, again, I don't know how many school students are likely to be in a position where, they, where they've got information that they're going to go out and give to any sort of audience. But I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make is on saying, I have this amount of knowledge I'm going to prepare this particular talk and give it. <clears throat> then I'll go along and then I'll give it, right? But but when you are actually working with any audience, so I've done masses of different sorts of talks from lots of discipline-specific scientific audiences to lots of generalized conference audience to lots of support groups, uh, you know, so as a geneticist, people with a particular disability or fertility support groups. I've talked to Probus, I've talked to country community groups, you know, it, and it goes on. So each of those audiences is very different and they each come with uh, not only different set of knowledge and a different experience and a different desire to, to learn, um, but, but they're going to respond in a different way. Their relationships with one another are different, so they're going to expect a different type of presentation. You really need to understand that before you start preparing your talk. And, and I would say that the majority of speakers don't do that. No, absolutely. They talk from their own perspective and forget yeah. who, they're, who they're talking to. Yeah, yeah. So when, when are you um, going to be publishing your first course? I hope that it will be published in the next couple of weeks. Well, that's extremely interesting, uh, Dr. Ford, and thank you so much for your time today. That's a pleasure, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFastHQ.com, delivering the world's best evidence-based solutions for learning since 1999. Head over to our website to read a transcript of the podcast. Go to learnfasthq.com, that's L-E-A-R-N-F-A-S-T-H-Q.com and click on podcast in the menu at the top of the page. And don't forget to subscribe in your listening app so you don't miss hearing any of the interesting discussions about learning, teaching and education.